Good morning. That is um, indeed what we're here for. Praise the one, the risen Son of God. I don't know of a better refrain <clears throat> we could sing to send us into, uh, into the Word and a good reminder of what we've done here, why we're here in the first place. Praise God that every Sunday when we gather, the Lord is reigning. I think we sang that this morning. He's risen and he's reigning, and that is a certain thing. Um, He has a body. Our Lord does, just like us, right now, at the right hand of the Father, somewhere, interceding on our behalf, upholding the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews says. So that we can take to heart this morning, that more sure than the sun is going to rise Uh, The risen Son is reigning at the right hand of the Father. There are some things that are absolutely certain. There are others, on the other hand, that are not so certain, like who is going to preach on a given Sunday, for example. Um, Had you asked, I think, anyone in the church uh, Friday night who would be preaching and what we would be doing this morning, you would say, yeah, plague eight, the locust, bring it on, and Lonnie's going to bring... Um, the next, next portion of Exodus to us, uh, but um, James has something to say about our tendency to just sort of flippantly, you know, be so certain about the future. Um, he, 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 he warns us against that. We should not say, I'm going to go here or there or do this or that. Instead, we ought to say, Lord willing, I'm going to do this or that. So, um, apparently, it was not the Lord's will that we would be in Uh, plague number eight this morning with the locusts. Instead, it was the Lord's will that Lonnie would get sick and we would instead go back to Philippians. So that's where we will be this morning is Philippians 2. For those of you guys that may be visiting, um, we are normally in Exodus. Uh, When I preach, which is when Lonnie doesn't preach, uh, we're we're going through a series in Philippians and we're about halfway through that. So uh, this morning our text will be Philippians chapter 2 verses 19 through 30. So while you're going to find that, I'll ask you now to stand so we can read this text. We uh, will start in verse 19 today. Um, I know the last several times we've gone all the way back to chapter 1 to get at the beginning of a section, but that section has ended. We'll talk about that. And today we'll read only Philippians 2 verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You could be seated. Yeah, pray with me as we ask the Lord to help us. Our Lord, we always need you. And if ever there was a time during the week where we needed you, it's always this this hour. The event of preaching and the event of hearing preaching is a miracle, God. Not, not because it's a miracle to develop a talk and listen to someone speak, but God, it's a miracle for us to discern spiritual things that are not meant for the natural man. 
So I pray that, that your spirit would help us to discern these things this morning, that if there are those here that, as Paul says, are blinded by the God of this world, I pray that you would open their eyes. I pray that you would remove that veil, remove that blindness so that they might hear spiritual things. God, would you, would you give new hearts to those who need new hearts? Would you have be born again those who need to be born again? Would you provide living water those who are only drinking the water that satisfies temporarily? God, those are the miracles that happen when your word goes forth. You tell us that. We've observed that with our own eyes. We've seen that in our own lives. And I pray now that you would help us. You would work that miracle in us now of hearing spiritual things. Would you do the same for our kids in the back as they're listening to your word be taught? Would you speak through those who are teaching now, young and old, young and older children, would you have them all not leave this morning without knowing something of your word and your character? God, we are weak, as we've heard prayed this morning already. We suffer, we're needy, and now, God, we come to feast. So I pray that you would feed us well. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, Paul has concluded... Uh, what we went through was the, the first major section of exhortation in Philippians. That began with chapter 1, verse 27, and it ended immediately before our text in chapter 2, verse 18. I won't, I won't recap that. We've done that enough already. But, but generally, the theme in that section was to live lives worthy of the gospel. And, and Paul worked that out in terms of Christian unity and Christian humility. It was the first of two main sections of exhortation in Philippians. The next section will come in the start of chapter 3 after today's text. So that means today's text sits in between the two major sections of discourse, of encouragement from Paul in this letter. He has moved away in these verses today. He's moved away from uh, the, the, the teaching aspect, moved away from exhorting the Philippians unto something. And he returns to update the Philippians on the practical affairs of his missionary movements. Uh, Paul spends a unique amount of time updating his readers on the practical affairs in Philippians, more so than he does in many other letters. Much of the first chapter of Philippians was Paul updating them on his situation and how things have been and what he thinks is going to happen next. And now he returns to this idea that he, he's updating the Philippians on, on sort of what might happen next with uh, his, his coming to see them and how he's going to communicate with them. Somehow he has to get this letter back to Philippi and that that occupies much of what he's going to say here and he also wants to check on them. He wants to know if they are indeed walking worthily of the gospel and he expects to hear a good report. He says that when he sends Timothy, he does so so that he too may be cheered by news of you. He expects a good report from the Philippians. So, so on one level, what's practically occupying Paul here is how is this letter going to get to Philippi and, and what's the news going to be when I hear back from Philippi? And this practical update brings into view these two faithful brothers. That's the title of our sermon this morning, Two Faithful Brothers. And, and the outline is about as easy as it gets. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Sometimes, sometimes you really struggle and sometimes the outline comes at the end of the preparation on Saturday night and you're not really sure how the parts relate to each other, how do the parts relate to the whole, how does the whole relate to the book, how does the book relate to the... Well, it was not the case here. It's pretty straightforward. In fact, one, one commentator spends all this time at the beginning of his commentary, sort of, you know, academically and exegetically breaking all of these things down and he goes, and all of this leads to, an, to a very... Simple outline, Timothy and Epaphroditus. It takes all this exegesis for us to realize there's two things Paul's talking about. Two faithful brothers that he puts in view here, Timothy and Epaphroditus. These are the two brothers that Paul commends to the Philippians. So let's start with Timothy 
and I'm going to reread verses 19 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will come also, that shortly I myself will come also. Well, as you may know, if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, Timothy is Paul's closest companion in ministry. He's with him in Rome. And if you remember, Timothy is technically listed as a co-author of this letter. Uh, The very first verse of this letter says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Philippi. Now, we we, we probably ought not to consider Timothy an actual co-author as writing the letter, but, but, but he's with Paul. Therefore, Paul's sending this letter on behalf of both of them. I don't think it's a stretch to say that second to the apostles, Timothy is probably the one name in the early church that that rises to the top amongst the early church. Second to the apostles, Timothy's probably the name that arises to the top. And more than any other disciple, Timothy is Paul's spiritual son. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he calls Timothy, he's writing to him, my child in the faith. My true child in the faith. And here in in Philippians 2 verse 22, he says that he has served with me as a son with a father. There's a a very paternal relationship that Paul has with Timothy. A brief background on this brother is that he comes on the scene in Acts chapter 16. Uh, Paul begins his second missionary journey. and, And at the very beginning of his second journey, he revisits some of the churches that were established on his first journey. And he revisits one of those towns, Lystra, and he meets this young brother named Timothy who came with a, with a sparkling commendation from everyone else there in Lystra. So Paul invites Timothy to accompany him on the rest of his journey. And because this is at the beginning of his second missionary journey, this is before Paul ever gets to Ephesus, before he ever goes to Colossae, before he ever goes to Macedonia where Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi are, before he ever goes to Achaia where where Corinth is, before he ever goes to Athens. So, So Timothy is with Paul the very first time Paul goes to all of these places. Timothy is on the cutting edge of of missionary gospel expansion with Paul in the New Testament. And and one of the other ways that we see this evident is that Timothy's name is listed as a a co-author of sorts in many of Paul's letters, not just Philippians, but also 2 Corinthians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Timothy is listed there alongside Paul as sending this letter. He will become a trusted protege of Paul and and almost in the sense that Paul will wield Timothy as an extension of himself as he goes about his ministry. There, There are times when Timothy will be left behind and Paul has to go on forward. There are times when Paul will send Timothy on ahead of himself to to do some preparatory work before he can get there. So we should just simply understand that, that Timothy is probably the closest disciple that we know of, that Paul has. And at this point, he is with Paul in Rome. Paul hopes to send Timothy to Philippi ahead of himself. Another instance of Paul sort of wielding Timothy as an extension of himself. Of course, Paul is not at liberty to leave Rome. He's in prison. Uh, but, But apparently, Timothy is at liberty to leave. And he hopes to send him as the next best thing to himself to encourage the Philippians face-to-face and to, and to report back to Paul of their progress in the faith. Now, at this point, 
it would be easy for us to read between the lines and try to fill in the blanks as to what really is happening with Timothy and Epaphroditus. This is what a lot of the commentators try to do. You know, what did Philippi expect? Did they prefer Timothy over Epaphroditus? Did Epaphroditus want to go? Did he, did he intend to stay with Paul? We try to fill in all these blanks because, frankly, we just don't have all of the information. And there's some things you can do there. You can maybe sort of recreate the situation uh, but I want to avoid that. That kind, of, that kind of conjecture isn't really helpful in a Christian sermon. So what I want to do as we observe this, these practical affairs, is simply observe what Paul does have to say about Timothy and about Epaphroditus. But specifically about Timothy, he's not ready to send him. For some reason, he still needs him in Rome. But he hopes to send him soon. And, and Paul gives the Philippians two, two reasons or two commendations of Timothy as to why he's the one that Paul hopes to eventually send. The first one is Timothy's genuine concern. And the second one is Timothy's faithful service. So let's look at both of those. Let me read verse 20 and 21. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So of all the potential individuals who Paul could send as emissaries to Philippi on his behalf, Timothy alone possesses genuine concern for the Philippians. Now, maybe this is because Timothy is the only one who knows them face to face and has that kind of relationship with them. But that's not the only reason because Paul elaborates in verse 21 and says the reason all the other potential emissaries are not satisfactory is because they seek their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. So we can include then that Timothy does not seek his own interests. Timothy does seek the interest of Christ. And if you've been paying attention at all, this language should absolutely be, be referring you back to chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul is in the middle of that idea of, of being worthy citizens, is imploring them to work out their citizenship with humility and others-orientedness. And he writes in verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This, this is the mindset of Timothy. Therefore, he would be qualified to serve the Philippians as Paul's eyes and ears in Philippi, while Paul cannot be there himself. This much seems obvious. But I want to make an observation about how Paul says this. In verse 20 and 21, he does not say... The others are unqualified because they seek their own interests instead of your interests. He is not comparing the interest of others to the interest of self. What Paul is comparing is the concern for self versus the concern for Christ. Do you see that in verse 21? So I think what we can conclude is to be genuinely concerned for others equals to seek the interest of Christ. Timothy seeks after not his own interest, but he seeks after the interest of Christ. And that is why he is genuinely concerned for the Philippians' welfare. I think this is a good opportunity to remind us of one of the themes that we talked about when we began this letter that, that permeates this entire letter. That's that bond between Christ and Paul and the Philippians. There's a three-way bond in this letter between Christ and Paul and the Philippians. They're the very basis of Paul and the Philippians' relationship, or now we could say the very basis of Timothy and the Philippians' relationship is their mutual bond to Jesus. Therefore, to be about one another's good is to seek their interest insofar as they remain connected to Christ. That's why the opposite of self-interest is not merely others' interest, but it's Christ's interest. The opposite of self-interest 
I'll say it again, is not merely others' interest, but Christ's interest. I'm trying to get us here to see that concern for others is a holy thing. It is sacred work because as we pursue the good of others, we're pursuing the interest of Jesus Christ. The Philippians are Christ's. They're bound to him by the gospel. Timothy is Christ's and he is bound to him by the gospel. They are members of one another, bound to each other by the gospel. So when we are genuinely concerned for our brother or sister, we're seeking the interest of Christ. Do you know why? What is Jesus genuinely concerned about for us? Our good. The same thing we're after. What is the good? It's to have more of Christ himself. The good is that Christ would be formed in us, in you. So to seek after the good of one another is to be genuinely concerned that that Christ may be formed in you. If Christ is the basis of our fellowship, then concern for others is a concern that Christ would be more fully formed in them. Do you see that? Hopefully this is driving home what it means to have genuine concern for others. And I think I may have asked this in the last sermon a few weeks ago in Philippians, but I think we have to ask it again. What is the foundation that our relationships are built on in the church? Is it that Christ may be formed in others? Is that, is that what's, what's, what's the solid, is that the reason we are members of one another so that Christ may be formed in you? Here's a way to tell. How, how difficult is it? How, how fluidly do you move from conversations about work and vacation and activities and how the kids are doing? Those sort of top two inch conversations. How easy is it to move from that to how is your soul? How, how, what is the Lord teaching you in his word? What, what lies am I believing? What lies are you believing? Let's preach the gospel to one another. How easily do you move into conversations of weight and seriousness with others? If we never make it there, if we never make it below the top two inches in our relationships, are we genuinely concerned for one another in this way? I don't see how we could be. Are we seeking the interest of Christ in others? Do you ever get serious? Or is your conversation mainly light and sarcastic and inconsequential? Just think of the, the kinds of conversations that Timothy would have if, when, if and when he is sent to Philippi. Undoubtedly, there would be, there would be joyful uh, reuniting with them. There would be catching up. There would be meals, I'm sure. But at some point, Timothy's going to ask them, how is your soul, friends, in Philippi? Are you indeed walking worthy of the gospel as Paul has instructed you? That's what he cares about. That's what I care about most. These are the kinds of conversations surely Timothy would have had because of his genuine concern. This is what it means to have genuine concern. Have you noticed how helpful Philippians has been in instructing our practical life together in the church? Instructing us on how to practically live among one another? Timothy is an example of having this genuine concern for others that Christ may be formed in those around you. This is reason number one that Paul intends eventually to send Timothy on ahead to Philippi. Reason number two is his track record of faithful service in the gospel. Verse 22, Paul writes, You know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy has a proven and tested pattern of faithful gospel work 
alongside Paul. As I already mentioned, Paul has leaned heavily on Timothy over the years. In Acts 17, Paul has to leave Berea abruptly because the Jews from Thessalonica are chasing him. They left one city, chased him to the next one. Now he's leaving to go to the next one. So he leaves abruptly and Timothy's left with the brand new Christians in Berea. A few chapters later in Acts 19, this is now Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, Timothy is sent ahead into Macedonia to revisit the churches there ahead of Paul to prepare them, see how they're doing, prepare them for Paul's coming. And then later, after, after Paul writes Philippians, eventually Paul will appoint Timothy as the lead of the church in Ephesus. So that when Paul writes to Timothy in First and Second Timothy, Paul is, uh, Timothy is pastoring the church there. At least he's the, maybe I use that term. He, he is the lead elder, the lead servant of the church in Ephesus. Paul will lean heavily on Timothy and he has a proven record of faithful service. And the Philippians have seen this firsthand. Multiple times, at least two that's recorded, Paul, uh, Paul and Timothy have been through Philippi. He was there on the first day of the gospel in Philippi, Acts 16, when Paul meets Lydia and the Philippian jailer is converted. Timothy's there. He spent time with the church and they know his proven worth and they know how faithfully he has served in the gospel. Like Paul, Timothy has given himself over to the work of the gospel. Like Paul, we could say, Timothy's vocation is found in the ministry of the gospel. And I want to sit there for a minute. I want to sit here for a minute on this idea considering vocation as service in the gospel. I chose that word carefully, vocation. Now, if most of us were asked, is your vocation in the service of the gospel, we would say no. A few of us would say yes, like myself and Lonnie and maybe a couple others who are employed in ministry would say yes, but there's, there's few of us. Uh, you may have heard Lonnie say, you used the term before, paid gospel worker. He's used that term. Uh, that was the phrase that he brought to me out of the blue a few years ago when the elders asked if I would consider this position of associate pastor, paid gospel worker. And, and that's the case for some. Maybe the Lord might be moving some in our church to become paid gospel workers. They might gain their, their, their employment by working full time for the church or, or perhaps by, by leaving and going to sow seeds of the gospel in the fields of other nations. But how we normally think of vocation, the way we would answer that question is with whatever we do. Whatever we make a living doing, whatever it is that pays the bills is our vocation. But for our purposes here, when we think of the word vocation, I do not mean what you do full time that you get paid for. If that were the extent of the word, then what would we say is the vocation of students or stay-at-home moms or, or folks who are injured or folks who are retired, are they vocationless? No, they're not. So, so we, we, it would be wise for us then to expand our understanding or our knowledge or the scope of the word vocation. Timothy's vocation is the ministry of the gospel. How can we expand that term vocation? Well, it might be helpful to think in terms rooted in creation. If you'll remember, God gives a mandate to Adam. He gives a mandate to mankind to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it and have dominion over all living things. And that, that mandate was worked out specifically when God put Adam in the garden and he said, work it and keep it. It was the work that God gave Paul to do under the mandate of be fruitful and multiply, have dominion and subdue it. God has graciously, here's the point, God has graciously given us all work to do as a function of that mandate that he gave 
to all of mankind. So this is what we should consider our vocation. Here's how I'm trying to redefine or broaden this term. God has graciously given all of us work to do under this mandate of fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And that work, whatever that work is that God has given us, is our vocation. Some of this work you get paid for. Most of this work we do not get paid for. Here's the point. Whatever category you fall in, whether you do make a living from paid gospel work, as a few of us do, whether you get paid by Chick-fil-A or Delta or the school system or some other business, as most of you do, whether you don't get paid at all because you're a student or you've chosen to stay home or you're retired or injured, whatever category you fall in, if you are a Christian, here's the point, part of the work God has laid before you is the ministry of the gospel. We don't always use the term minister, but part of the work God has laid before you as a Christian is in the service of the gospel. You don't have to be a paid gospel worker to be a gospel worker. That's the point. I have no idea if Timothy got paid for the work that he does. So that's an irrelevant part of vocation, getting paid. You don't have to be a paid gospel worker to be a gospel worker. All Christians are gospel workers and they have this as part of their vocation. Timothy serving faithfully in the ministry of the gospel is not a unique task to Timothy. The particular way in which he served, we could say, is unique to him, sure. But all of us who claim the name of Christ ought to be faithful in the service of the gospel. And this is vocational work God has given to each of us. By his grace, I might add. So of course, this is part of the work we have to do to be faithful in the service of the gospel. Now, lest that remain too abstract, what in the world does faithful in the service of the gospel actually mean? Does that, does that have any substance to it? I want to make sure that has substance to it. I don't want to just say that and sort of leave that to be Christianese. What does it mean practically? We just realized we all have this vocation to be faithful in the service of the gospel. What does it mean to do that? What does it mean to exercise or discharge that duty? Well, we've seen one already from Timothy, and that's to be genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. I think that is one way in which Timothy has been faithful in the gospel, not only with the Philippians, but across the Mediterranean throughout Paul's ministry. But instead of just pulling together a, a list of random things, uh, practical ways to serve in the gospel, what I want to do is turn us to 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is what Kyle read from earlier. And I want to read uh, verses 11 through 14. Now, the context here is that Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus when Paul writes this letter to him. And, and the instruction Paul is giving him is, here is how you should discharge your service in the gospel. Here's how you should do it. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. He had just been talking about division in love of money. Flee those things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Here's what I charge you. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have Paul here telling Timothy very practically what to do to be faithful in your vocation in the service of the gospel. So one of the things we could say, what, is, what does it practically mean? How do we put meat on the bones of be faithful in the service of the gospel? Paul gives to Timothy 
in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Flee sin, verse 11. Be faithful in your service to the gospel by fleeing sin. Also, verse 11. Be faithful in your service to the gospel by pursuing godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Be faithful in your service of the gospel, verse 12, by protecting the faith that has been entrusted to you. He will also tell Timothy to guard the good deposit that has been given to you. Take hold of the eternal life that has been granted to you in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, be faithful in your vocation as a servant of the gospel by maintaining a pure witness keeping yourself unstained and free from reproach in a watching world. See, none of this is unique to pastoral ministry. None of this this instruction Paul gave to Timothy was unique to his role as a pastor in Ephesus. All of us who are Christians are given to this work, to this service in the gospel. All of us as Christians have, in a very real sense, our vocation being Flee sin, pursue godliness, take hold of eternal life, be above reproach. That's what it means to be faithful in your service of the gospel. Chances are you will not be paid for this work. But that's okay. It's, in fact, more significant this work is than the work that you do get paid for. This is the kind of work that Timothy has been faithful in. And soon he will be sent to Philippi to continue in this work among the Philippians, but not quite yet. Verse 23, Paul says, I hope to send him soon, as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. For some reason, we're not told exactly why, Paul needs Timothy to stay with him until he can see how this situation with his appeal to Caesar is going to work out. He's already deliberated significantly in chapter one about how he thinks that's going to happen. He expects to be released. He hopes to see the Philippians soon. But until he knows for certain, Timothy's staying with him. So in the meantime, there is another faithful brother Paul has at his disposal. And this is Epaphroditus. So let me reread verses 25 through 30. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus is the one who gets the first call to go back to Philippi. You may remember that the occasion Paul is writing is in response to a gift the Philippians sent to him. And we learn here that Epaphroditus was the messenger who brought that gift from Philippi to Rome. Paul calls him my messenger, the messenger from Philippi. Now, it may seem like a logical choice. Epaphroditus might seem like the logical choice. He's just sending him back home, sending him back where he came from. We don't get any other information in the New Testament about Epaphroditus. He's only mentioned in this letter. So maybe Paul is just sending him back home. But there seems to be more layers than that as to why Paul has chosen to send Epaphroditus and why he's chosen to send him now. We learn here that apparently during the trip from Philippi to Rome, Epaphroditus became sick, very sick sick. Twice, Paul says how sick he became. Verse 27, near to death. Verse 30, he risked his life. That's how sick he was. And in the ancient world, it wasn't very often someone recovered from being near death, right? They didn't have 
the advances available to us to, to come back from being near death. But God in his mercy brought Epaphroditus back from that condition. He has now recovered physically. But Epaphroditus heard that the Philippians heard he was sick. And now Epaphroditus is distressed that they're distressed for him. So to satisfy Epaphroditus' distress, he has longing to go back to satisfy Philippi's concern for Epaphroditus, to put Paul's own mind at ease that Epaphroditus might finally get home safely. He is the one who Paul sends. I am the more eager to send him that you may rejoice at seeing him. When he returns in Philippi, Paul expects them to receive him in the Lord with all joy and to honor such men. His extraordinary, Epaphroditus' extraordinary effort in the service of the gospel is worthy of honor, Paul says. Not because it props him up, but because it magnifies the gospel which he served. You know, we're, we're often in our humility, I think rightly, quick to deflect honor when it's given to us. And that's, that's right, that's good. We, we certainly ought not to be seeking that honor from others. But there might also be times when that humility might be more false than helpful. Because there is a way in which our service in the gospel and recognizing others' faithful service in the gospel doesn't prop up the individual, but it does prop up and magnify the gospel of Christ which they serve. And that's the point here. That, that Epaphroditus' ministry is a token of service unto the Lord which can magnify the beauty of the gospel. Why else would an individual risk their life in a harrowing journey across the Aegean Sea from Philippi to Rome on roads with bandits and robbers except if there was a reason and that reason being this message is important to deliver. The gospel is important. So I don't think it is random that this passage, mainly of practical missionary movements, is included after what we've heard in chapter 2, its focus on humility and others-oriented service. We've already noticed how Timothy exemplified the mindset of chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. But now that we've seen Epaphroditus' witness, I just want to stack up all the, I just want to stack up all the evidence here of how this is exemplifying the mindset of verses 3 and 4. Let's just start at the beginning. The Philippians are concerned for Paul, so they send him a gift. Epaphroditus shares that concern, so he is the one sent from Philippi to deliver this gift to Rome. Epaphroditus gets sick. The Philippians are concerned for him. They don't know what happens. Maybe the gift made it, maybe it didn't, but they're concerned for their brother who is sick. Epaphroditus is concerned that those in Philippi are concerned for him. Epaphroditus makes it, he recovers. Now Paul renews his own concern for the Philippians. That's why he's writing this letter to exhort them and encourage them to walk worthy of the gospel. So he sends this letter back to Epaphroditus, uh, back via Epaphroditus. By sending it via Epaphroditus, it relieves Epaphroditus' concern that they're concerned for him. It relieves the Philippians' concern for Epaphroditus. And it relieves Paul's own concern that Epaphroditus needs to get home. Finally, well not finally, Paul really wants to send Timothy, who is genuinely concerned for the Philippians. But ultimately he wants to go himself to visit so that his concern for their growth in Christ might be finally satisfied with his own two eyes. All that's happening here is just others-oriented concern flying about from everyone. Everyone's just concerned for everyone else. Epaphroditus is concerned that they're concerned about his concern. This is what it looks like to not only in your own interests, to, to look not only after your own interests, but also the interests of others. 
This is practical missionary movements, but I think Paul has put this here for a reason to show this is what it looks like when folks have the mindset of chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. These are two men whose lives are worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the two threads running through both of them, I only laid this out with Timothy, but it's the case the same with Epaphroditus. The two threads running through both of these men's lives is genuine concern and faithful service. Genuine concern and faithful service is what we see from these two faithful brothers. Now, as we close... I want to situate this in the larger context, not just the context of Philippians, but I want to situate this this situation here in the larger context of the first century where the gospel is spreading and churches are growing. This struck me yesterday as I was reading about these missionary movements and 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 researching more about how how Timothy and Epaphroditus moved around from the churches and sort of Paul's trajectory the communication between Rome and Philippi, the the movement of people for the sake of the gospel, the way that people moved about the churches to encourage one another. I was just struck with the reminder that God is busy advancing his gospel. He is busy working to advance his gospel. Last week in Exodus, we read about how God was so clearly intent on his name being magnified among Pharaoh and among the Egyptians. God is still about his name in the first century. God is still about his name in and among the Mediterranean and in these frontier places. At this time, considered frontier places. He's still concerned for his name now. God is still busy with his gospel going forth today. And it goes forth on the backs of folks like Timothy and Epaphroditus. The only difference is those who go forth today will not have their name preserved in the annals of church history. But they still go forth with genuine concern for others and faithful service in the gospel. And they do so wherever it takes them. Going forth, the gospel is going forth because God has men and women all over the globe who were concerned with Christ's church and concerned with his people. This this movement of people fueled by the gospel is still happening today. It started in the first century. We could say it started before that, but it started here in the first century with Paul and these brothers who were moving about and communicating with the churches. And that kind of gospel-fueled movement is still happening because God is still concerned for his name. And there are those who not only are concerned for Christ's church and his people where they are, but there are those who are concerned that there are some who are called not my people. And when the gospel is proclaimed among not my people, whether it's in faraway lands or in your office building, those who were not my people, God will have mercy on some and they will be renamed my people. Because God desires for his name to be known. And he desires for his name to be praised for his glorious grace He says in Ephesians chapter 1. So the movement of Timothy and Epaphroditus, what we're seeing here, ultimately is to serve the magnification of the glorious grace of Yahweh. On one level, we're seeing the practical matters of missionary movements. But on a much deeper and much more profound level, we're seeing the evidence of the fact that God's name will be praised among the nations for his glorious grace. Timothy and Epaphroditus had a small part to play in that. You and I, because of the vocation we have been given in the gospel, Lord willing, will have a small part to play in that. God says through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 6, He says that my servant, speaking of Christ, 
my servant will become a light for the nations. Right before that, he actually says, it's too small a thing if he only comes back for the Israelites. It's not to diminish Israel. It's too light, too small a thing if he only comes back for Israel. My servant will become a light for the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The faithful service of Timothy and Epaphroditus, which we read about here, is evidence that God will build his church. He will make a name for himself. He will be magnified among the nations. He will turn some of not my people into my people, and he will be honored and glorified into eternity for the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these texts which on the surface seem quick and seem informational only. But we praise you for the reminder that you are a busy God and you are working. Each of us in this room who are Christians are evidence of the fact that you have worked because we don't deserve to be here I don't deserve to be reading this word. We don't deserve to be hearing this message. We don't deserve to have any of the grace you've given to us. Yet we are all living, breathing evidence that you are busy and you are working because you have worked in us. I pray that this would be a reminder for us as we witness these two faithful brothers for us to be faithful in our service of the gospel and genuinely concerned for one another. Would you keep these things on our minds as we go and we do our work this week, some of which we get paid for, most of which we do not. Watch over us as we leave from this place. Watch over our time now as we spend a few minutes remembering what you have done for us in Christ. May we be able to exhibit as we remember and proclaim this Lord's Supper. Might we be able to exhibit genuine concern for one another regarding the body well, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Thank you for your son. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your name. Amen.